Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Joe Biden uh, was uh, fielding softball questions from uh, one of the functionaries of the D.C. press corps. And he was asked about uh, this uh, Gallup survey number that's sort of jarring if you're a Democrat. Fifty six percent of Americans saying they're better off than they were four years ago. That is a significantly higher number than George Bush before his reelection, before Barack Obama, before his reelection. So what do you say to those 56 percent? Joe? Gallup reported last week 56% of Americans said that they were better off today than they were four years ago, would have been under the Obama-Biden administration. So why should people who feel that they are better off today under the Trump administration vote for you? Well, if they think that, they probably shouldn't. I'm Donald Trump, and I approve this message. Exactly. That should be a campaign commercial. Hey, a majority of Americans... Do not vote for Joe Biden, says Joe Biden. OK, well, then somebody better prepare his concession speech. It's a remarkable statement. It's a remarkable statistic and a reaction to it as well. And you know what would be a nice venue to have the two presidential candidates talk about this? A debate which should be happening tonight rather than these competing town halls. This is exactly the sort of issue that should be dealt with by the two candidates on a debate stage together in real time. And it's an opportunity that has been foreclosed by this nonpartisan debate commission to the American people. President Trump should uh, offer to do it in Joe Biden's basement. We, we have to physically be in the same place and broadcast that because the interaction with people who are physically in the same place is different. And that's what the American people want to see. That's what they deserve. And Trump should say, hey, look, I'll, I'll fly you anywhere. I'll fly anywhere. We should be together in the same space. You, you pick the moderator. You pick everything else. We just have to be together in the same space because there are other issues, too, that have come to the fore in the last 24 hours that should be dealt with by the two candidates, Mano, Imano, on a debate stage. And that is the uh, a seeming emails from uh, Hunter Biden per this computer that was discovered in Delaware. The newly uncovered emails reveal that a top executive from the highly questionable Ukrainian company, it's an energy company, which paid Hunter at least $50,000 a month, but it's now looking like it could be $183,000 a month. That's a lot of money. Would anybody in this audience take it? I'll take it. We'll take it. Despite the fact that he had absolutely no experience, knew nothing about energy, wrote to Hunter, arranging for a meeting to meet with Vice President Joe Biden. I've been saying this for a long time with that family. The same Ukrainian energy executive even sent Hunter an email saying, quote, we urgently need your advice on how you could use your influence. In other words, Hunter was being paid. 
Yeah, and we talked about this yesterday, the, the emails. So it establishes, if those emails are authenticated, that the number three executive at Burisma met with Joe Biden. Joe Biden saying he never got involved in Hunter's business dealings, didn't know anything about it. That's obviously not true. And then there was an email before that meeting, at the meeting happening after Hunter was already on the board of Burisma, making upwards of 50 grand a month, where that same executive asked Hunter how he could use his influence to advance the interests of Burisma effectively. This is a, a relevant topic here in the last three weeks. For more on relevant topics in the last three weeks and the format in which they may be addressed, we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid Mark Lauder, Director of Strategic Communications for the Trump campaign. Mark, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. How are you? So um, the uh, October 22nd debate, I, I understand, is still a green lighted, right? That's going to go as agreed upon? Uh, as far as we know, but I mean, who knows what the commission yeah, exactly. debate is going to do since they decided to change the rules at the last minute and try to make tonight's debate a Zoom call. Yeah, exactly. And and so, uh, I mean, I appreciate the president doing what he can and doing this competing town hall. So at least you hear from him directly and there's questions that he takes from the American people and so forth. But what about that? What about making this more of an issue to say these are exactly the sort of issues that have arisen in the last couple of days that should be dealt with by the two of us on a stage anywhere Joe Biden wants to travel? Well, I mean, we've offered the president has been very clear. He wanted to debate. He wants to debate. And this wasn't just a debate, by the way. I mean, this wasn't just the two of them with a moderator. This was supposed to be a town hall right. with voters. How do you do a town hall meeting on via Zoom when you're supposed to be interacting with these people? And they could have made the same arrangements or even different arrangements to protect Joe Biden. They could have covered him in plexiglass like they tried to do with Kamala Harris. So, I mean, there were steps they could have taken, but they chose to unilaterally not do it. They're pro trying to protect Joe Biden, just like you see big tech trying to protect Joe Biden by censoring one of the largest newspapers in the country because they happen to be publishing stories that are unfavorable to Biden Incorporated. In terms of the closing argument and the defining of Joe Biden, there seems to be a couple of tracks and you can ha you know, have a layer definition of somebody. It doesn't just need to be one thing. He's a thief. He can be a thief and other things, too. So Joe Biden is beholden to the Marxist left of his party. So he's, he's a man who's uh, hostage by this leftist movement. And he's also somebody who has allowed his family to self-deal and trade on his position in public office. So it's a, a personal enrichment claim. How do you shape that definition, it seems to me, is coming into focus, and then present the choice? What does that sound like as voters go to the polls now, but particularly with an eye toward November 3rd? Well, I think you just have to look at just look at the facts and, and make your own mind up. I mean, this is a campaign led by Joe Biden and the radical left that is willing to pack the courts, eliminate the, the Electoral College, eliminate the filibuster, censor major news organizations, defund the police. You know, I mean, all of these things, you know, you know, they want to put energy workers out of their jobs. I mean, all of these things just fit one big narrative. And it's all very similar is that there's nothing that they won't do and there's nobody they won't silence or put out of their job. If they don't agree with you, your right to free speech, your right to freedom of thought, freedom of assembly. You can't even go to church in this country, you know, in some Democrat run states. You can protest, but you can't go to church. I mean, yeah, all of your your freedoms are on the line. Yeah, I think I actually seemed I, I think that's a better uh, closing argument than even focusing on Joe Biden so much. I think the more global point that you're making, because it seems to me the left is trying to get away with Joe Biden, what they got away with with Barack Obama, which is sort of somebody who's relatively inoffensive in terms of demeanor. 
um, as really, speaking of Manchurian candidates, since they like to project, the Manchurian candidate for the radical left, the same way that Barack Obama was in 2008 and to a lesser extent in 2012. That's what Joe Biden is serving as in 2020. And they figure they got away with it twice with Obama. They can get away with it with uh, once with Joe Biden is what it seems to me. Uh, The difference is, uh, yes, the two gentlemen have some differences in terms of personality and capacity. But the, the difference is what's happening on the ground in America in 2020 versus 2008. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the energy is on the president's side. We have the largest grassroots campaign in the history of presidential politics. We have more volunteers that are trained than even Barack Obama had in 2012. And they're out there. They're doing their work right now. They're out there knocking on doors, making phone calls, making sure people, you know, who request an absentee ballot, get it, fill it out, get it you know, delivered where it needs to go. We can't be silenced, but we have to step up. We need to be the silent majority no more. We need to be loud. We need to be heard. And we need to run up the score because if you love this country, you cannot leave this thing to chance because the Democrats will cheat and steal and do everything they can to take this away from President Trump. Give us your handle on the polling. This is, you know, a lot of people, of course, watch the horse racing and the horse race numbers. And it's uh, it's obsessed upon by the cable news networks. If you look uh, underneath the top line national numbers, which don't mean very much because it's not a popular election to the battleground states, uh, you find that Trump is actually a little bit of head ahead of where he was in 2016. So that's the good news. The 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 bad news is. You know, 2016 was the razor's edge. I mean, 5,000 votes in in Wisconsin and 45 in Pennsylvania. I mean, they weren't blowouts, so there's not a big margin for error. Give give us your handle on the numbers and and the race as we stand uh, here on October 15th. Well, we are absolutely ahead of where we were in 2016, and and but even in not just in terms of the polls. I mean, I'll use I'll use Pennsylvania as an example. You know, we have closed the voter registration gap with Democrats by over 200,000 votes since since 2016. So a state that we won 44,000 votes for the president, we have added more than uh, nearly 200,000 more Republicans in that state between people who have left the Democrat Party and people who have registered with the with Republicans. So there's an advantage. We've closed the gap in in Wisconsin. We've eliminated the gap and now have a lead in Iowa. We've done the same thing down here in Florida where I am currently. So in all of those key battleground states, we have made those changes. We've made that ground game that we've been doing for over three and a half years. And now is the time when it gets put to use. And and Democrats flooding in at the last minute. There's a reason why Joe Biden had to start knocking on doors after months of saying they didn't need to do it. And that's because their numbers are saying the same thing. They're losing this race. But it's close. But they're losing it. Elections matter, but so do campaigns and uh, those sorts of mechanics that you're talking about. Mark Lauder, Director of Strategic Communications for Team Trump. Mark, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show uh, with uh, Mark Lauder, Strategic Communications Director for the campaign. We we covered Joe Biden, the uh, man beholden to the Marxist movement that has subsumed the Democrat Party. We uh, covered Per Hunter, but others in the family as well. Joe Biden, the uh, 
patriarch who provided a glide path for his family to enrich itself by leveraging his public office. Uh, Now we cover, uh, for some reflection, Joe Biden the Fabulist. Uh, Joe Biden the Fabulist, not just when it comes to plagiarizing former labor leader Neil Kinnock 30 years ago when he was running for president the first time, but also with respect to his apocryphal life story in so many respects, from corn pop at the pool to uh, lying about things that why would you lie about them? For example, that his first wife was tragically killed in a car accident, saying that she was killed by a drunk driver, that the driver was not drunk. Why would you continue to persist with lying about things that you don't need to lie about? Why would you, after having to correct your academic record, as he had to do 30 years ago as well, then say in this election cycle that you started out your post-secondary career at a historically black university, Delaware State, which you didn't. It's just bizarre. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Ira Stoll, editor of futureofcapitalism.com, a writer of syndicated column, which appears in the New York Sun, Reason, and Newsmax as well. Ira, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Good to be here. Uh, yeah, how do you square Joe Biden the fabulist with you know the other faces of Joe Biden that uh, I was describing that we've seen? I, I, I mean, it's not an isolated incident, and it's not one that is buried in his past. It, it continues to the present. It's weird. Part of me wants to cut him a little slack. I mean, these politicians are out there for hours every day, and they're going to make a misstep or two. Mm-hmm. But this guy, he had to end his presidential campaign in 1987 because he falsely borrowed this British politician's life story about being descended from coal miners and being the first in his family to go to college neither one of which was true. I mean, the first Biden ever to go to college, totally not true. There's video of him talking about his uncle who went to Lehigh. But, you know, and and that's hardly a youthful indiscretion since he was, you know, the tender age of 45 at the time. Yeah. So why would he go and do that again? I, I think part of it, he's he's trying to appeal to these blue collar, non college educated voters So he's trying to pretend that he's Joe Biden, the guy from Scranton. But that's dangerous because he's actually a lawyer who's a professor at an Ivy League college who, together with his wife, earned almost $1.7 million in 2008 from colleges and universities. Yeah, and, you know, not only the disconnect between, uh, you know, Lunchbox Joe and the reality of the Biden life, but also it, it, it speaks to uh, his own enrichment. I mean, since he's only ever been uh, a public official, basically, the ability to not only uh, earn a couple hundred grand a year over the last uh, 40 as a senator, then vice president, uh, a little bit more. Uh, but also you get access to these elite universities where you really get uh, tre- uh, compensated handsomely because of the, the public offices you held. So, I mean, it, it's it's sort of an underappreciated aspect of the personal enrichment, the ruling class enrichment, not just for his family by leveraging his office, but him leveraging his office. Right. And he's going around campaigning in Pennsylvania and Ohio now talking about this election as a contest between Scranton and Park Avenue values. Uh, like he's some sort of uh, Warren Sanders type class warrior, which is ironic because he's also accusing Trump of dividing the country. That's pretty divisive and not unifying there too, d- denouncing Park Avenue. 
But, you know, he's living in a, he bought a, a 10,000 square foot mansion that used to be owned by the DuPonts while he was still a senator. So, so, <laughs> well, I mean, you know, you know what? Hey, hey, the, those coal miners could have that same 10,000 foot uh, house, 10,000 square foot house if they just learned to code, Ira. <laughs> Right. I mean, that, that, that's the whole thing on the one hand. And, and it's also that also uh, that, that contradiction also exists with this lying. The one hand, he lies about his academic record. I'm an outstanding college student. I was an outstanding law school student. And the other hand, um, then he lies about uh, whatever being a tough guy. I mean, at least it's it seems like it's apocryphal. I, I don't know if anybody's identified Corn Pop. It, yeah, he was a tough guy, you know, who just was a lifeguard like any other kid growing up in a in a working class neighborhood. I mean, it just it just lies about everything. It, it's not like it's one thread that he's trying to portray something specific. He just lies about his entire. His, it's just, so much of his life is just conjured out of whole cloth. It it seems. Yeah, so the phoniness just extends so far, right? Like, we're supposed to believe that he's going to be tougher on China than Trump, that he's going to somehow stand up for Israel more than Trump. Um, and, you know, I, I think the, the the lying about his personal life history it, it connects to the policy stuff. It's not a it's not a separate thing. And, it, it, you know, it, it, it's, it extends to the dividing and uniting. It extends to the idea that he's going to be better for blue-collar union guys. It's just that there's a fundamental falsehood about the, about the, about the whole thing. Well, and it also can, for the messaging in the final three weeks of the campaign, can fold into President Trump's, his campaign messaging about Joe Biden being a cipher, and that he will say and do anything to get the position. And and here's what he has to say and do to get the position. And here's what they're going to do when he gets the position, you know, sort of the man taken over by the Marxist movement. And uh, the fact that he has this uh, curious relationship with the truth that goes uh, spans decades, uh, it seems to provide more evidence to support the claim that uh, this is somebody who's happy to be beholden to whatever gets him to the next you know, title. Right. Even on the race stuff, he's all over the place. I mean, remember, this is the guy who Kamala Harris was denouncing in the debates as someone who was who was not wanting to let her go to a go to a public school, uh, you know, who was leading protests against court ordered busing in, in Wilmington, Delaware. And now all of a sudden he's running for president because Trump is a, is a racist. Uh, I mean, it's just it's it's crazy. It's an amazing time because I mean, I, I mean I, I'm sure you do too. I remember the uh, indictments against Joe Biden the previous two times he ran, including uh, in 2008, uh, that he didn't have the capacity for the job, and it wasn't because people thought he was senile. It's just like this guy isn't smart enough. He doesn't have the skill sets to do this job, and now. Uh, decades after his first run and, and a decade and a half after his second, now all of a sudden we're going to turn the keys over to him. It's just a remarkable turn of events. People do not find him very impressive. I mean, I, I saw him campaigning in New Hampshire, and the average age of the crowd was like 85 years old. And and it, it was not a big crowd. A couple times I saw him. and I'm surprised he's gotten as far as he has. Well, uh, hopefully uh, it's, this is as far as he goes. He doesn't get to the other side of November 3rd uh, politically 
for more, uh, and we'll see. Uh, appreciate uh, your time. Iris Stoll, editor of futureofcapitalism.com, writer of syndicated column, which appears in the New York Sun, Reason, and Newsmax. Thanks, Iris. My pleasure. Is it love? Is it Show.com. Welcome back to the show. Continuing our discussion on all things COVID with a focus on economic impacts. Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, point person for the administration in negotiations with uh, We Feed Them, Speaker Pelosi. Uh, took to CNBC this morning and said this about the impasse between the White House and the Speaker on the size and composition of the next COVID relief legislation. We had proposed a a bipartisan bill that has support both in the Senate and in the House to go forward with testing. But uh, quite frankly, when I speak to Pelosi today, I'm going to tell her that we're not going to let the testing issue stand in the way that we'll fundamentally agree with their testing language subject to some minor issues. Uh, This issue is being overblown. We need to get money to the American public now, the people that are most hurting. Mm -hmm. Uh, Language over a national testing strategy is how it's described. Additionally, President Trump suggesting he was open minded on going above the one point eight trillion that is on the table with Pelosi. Uh, I don't know if that includes at this juncture uh, giving in to some of the bailouts of mismanaged states that Pelosi wants or what else that would entail. But that's the uh, state of play for more on this. We're pleased to be joined again by our friend Don Boudreau who's an American economist, author, professor, co-director of the program on the American economy and globalization at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Don, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Happy to be here. So uh, $1.8 trillion, uh, what's a few more hundred billion dollars between friends at this juncture? Uh, but Mnuchin's point, uh, the, we need to get another $1,200 check in the hands of the American people. This is uh, what COVID relief looks like. Uh, what does that sound like to you? Uh, well, first of all, let me say I'm not, I, I'm not impressed by President Trump's vaunted uh, bargaining skills. It seems like Pelosi's getting everything she wants uh, with uh, the side of reasonableness, giving in and getting, and getting nothing. So look, I, I've said this before, and I'll, I'll say it again. You can write as many checks as you like. The problem now is not the fact that people don't have money. The problem is that that people aren't working. They aren't producing things. The economy is still strapped down and and, and hamstrung and constantly under the threat of further further lockdowns. And this this talk about giving checks, it's a a drug, it's a narcotic that makes people think, okay, everything's going to be all right. But, But the real problem is getting the economy going back and getting people back to work, getting restaurants back to work, returning to a, a, a sane state of social and economic existence, which we are not in because the, the irrational fear of, of COVID, fear stoked by the, by, the, by the media and by politicians, is, is, is a giant poison that is keeping the economy in, in a straitjacket. And no amount of checks are going to fix that. 
Oh, right, because you you have other things, other um, ugliness starting to present itself. Uh, Wall Street Journal reporting this week, three building three buildings on Madison Avenue's main retail corridor have sold for about 80 percent below peak sales price in 2014, signaling that depressed Manhattan retail real estate prices continue to tumble. Well, no surprise if you don't have customers that retail space is going to be uh, less attractive, uh, significantly, uh, people aren't coming out of their homes. That's a problem. Uh, and so, uh, the coming commercial real estate crash, uh, that's not going to be solved with 1200 bucks per person. No, no, it's not going to be solved with 1200 bucks per person. It's not going to be solved with 12,000 bucks per person. First of all, Congress, Congress doesn't, Congress doesn't make wealth. Congress can only, all the checks Congress spends out, sends out, these are claims on stuff that other Americans make. And if other Americans aren't making stuff, then these claims are worth a lot less than, than they look to be to be on, on paper. Um, and my, the fear I have is that all this discussion about you know, stimulus this, stimulus that, again, I think it's, it, it's, it's, it's a diversion from the true problem. And uh, at some point, at some point, no amount of it, people will realize that getting another check isn't going to solve anything. At some point, we have to return to normalcy. And I'm really upset that I see so little uh, effort in, in among you know, policymakers to, to try to get us back to normalcy. They're talking about stimulus. They're, they're, they're talking about, about just keeping things hidden uh, behind, behind the stimulus. Uh, yes, right. And, and I, I want to get to that uh, phrase you used, irrational fear. Uh, We'll explore that, particularly in the context of uh, Andrew Cuomo's recently unearthed comments. Uh, Right after this, we'll be back with Don Boudreau, American economist, co-director of the program on the American economy and globalization at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Uh, leaked audio from a conference call between New York Governor Andrew Cuomo and Jewish leaders from last week. Andrew Cuomo, America's governor, to hear uh, the D.C. press corps tell the story, despite, uh, of course, the the greatest number of deaths of any state in the country by a wide margin occurring in New York state. Uh, during a response in the, on the conference call to a question about why schools needed to be co- closed completely, uh, new restrictions on businesses, schools, houses of worship in the, uh, Jewish, uh, uh, significant Jewish neighborhoods in Queens and Brooklyn that led to the protests. Uh, in response to those inquiries from Jewish residents of New York, Andrew Cuomo said this. Rabbi, I'll ask, uh, let me make a comment and let us talk to Zucker. I don't disagree with you. Uh, and look, I, I'm 100% frank and candid. Uh, this is not a highly nuanced, sophisticated response. This is a fear-driven response. You know, this is not a policy being written by a scalpel. This is a, a policy being cut by uh, a hatchet. It's just.
just a very blunt uh, I didn't propose this you know it was proposed by the mayor uh, in the city I'm trying to uh, sharpen it and make it better but it's out of fear people see the numbers going up uh, close everything close everything uh, it's not the best way to do it but it is uh, a fear driven response the, the virus scares people hopefully we get the numbers down in the zip codes the anxiety comes down and then we can have a smarter more tailored approach uh for more on this we're pleased to be joined back by don boudreau american economist author professor co-director of the program on the american economy and globalization at the mercatus center at george mace university you see don uh, a little authoritarianism to deal with the the fear that we've engendered and then we can be reasonable and smart with respect to surgical public policy I was shocked to hear that coming from from Cuomo, who who has done more to uh, uh, to engender fear than than Cuomo, um, as I read it. So I like a phrase that Wall Street Journal columnist Holman Jenkins used recently. He calls 2020 the year of living derangedly. Yes. and I think that's what we're in. We are we are we are, we are humanity has become deranged. And 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 the reaction to COVID is off the charts nuts. Uh, an example I use, a metaphor I use, is something I recently wrote. I said, you know, it's, it's, it's like a hornet and a honeybee. Well, okay, you don't want to get stung by either one. A hornet is, of course, worse than getting stung by a honeybee. But it still doesn't mean that you know you tear down your house and you torch the whole town just to kill the hornet. You you, you deal with it in a more reasonable way. You don't think of the, the hornet is not a fire-breathing dragon. It's not an existential threat. It's an unusually big D, and that's what COVID is. It is not an existent, the existential threat that people keep making it out to be. But politicians, a lot of the people in the mainstream media, they they report it as if this is the this is some un, this is like some extraterrestrial, unknown, categorically different threat that we and humanity are under. And so, I, who, who can blame a lot of people for responding as they do, given mu- much of what 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 Cuomo himself does watch what they hear on CNN. Uh, the the New York Times, I don't know how it is in Chicago, but the New York Times, the, the, the Washington Post here is frantic about about COVID. It's it's just it's just insane. And if I sound frustrated, I am because it's hard to deal with this insanity. Well, they they've spawned a, a whole sort of hobby industry of COVID, of COVID enthusiasts, politicians, as well as uh, the minders of others that are just your everyday citizens who. Uh, are are you know are here to regulate your life for you when it comes to mask wearing or social distancing or uh, or any other aspect of of life in COVID culture? Uh, it really is, and, and I, I don't know I don't know what breaks the fever to you know uh, extend a metaphor. I, I don't know what breaks the fever. Uh, uh, you know, I keep, you know, a few months ago, I, I thought, okay, we'll wake, we'll wake up and people should be getting tired of this and we should see the derangement starting to decline. But I gotta say, Dan, I, I don't see the derangement uh, going away anytime soon. I mean, I don't, you know, maybe after the election in three weeks, maybe, maybe on, you know, that Wednesday morning after suddenly it's, the fever starts to break, but I don't know. I mean, I, people have just, just, just become 
It's, it's taken on a life of its own. This fear has taken on a life of its own. And I am no great fan of FDR, but I will say yes. he's never said anything more true than the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, and that has never been more true than it is right now. Uh, you wrote a piece um, over at uh, American Institute for uh, uh, Economic Research. Economic Research. Yeah, that uh, COVID is not categorically different. Um, and, uh, you know, again, the survival rates, I, I, that I, this, it's amazing to me, it's something where you're supposed to be in a life and death battle and there's so little attention paid to survival rates the, because the reporting of every COVID infection is, is, has the tenor of a death sentence. And basically what we know from the CDC is under the age of 70, the survival rate is 99.5% or better. Yeah. Under the age of fifty, uh, you, literally, you have a worse, you have a greater chance of dying from the flu than you do of of, of COVID. So the you know the, the the bulk of our society stands a greater is at a greater risk of dying if they get uh, of the, the flu uh, from the flu than they stand to die of COVID if they get COVID. Uh, but these kinds of statistics are not reported. We get these 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 breathless reports of you know cases are going up and and. With very little said about, you know, the testing is going up. Are you going to get? Of course, you're going to get a larger number of cases when you have more testing. A lot of these tests have terrible uh, rates of false positives. Um, it's just so weird. I mean, it, 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 we, we we play sporting events with now fans. We have these eerie cardboard cutouts, and this is this is all done in the name of of saving a handful of lives, mostly of very old people. I know it sounds cruel. But, but the the, the this, there's no way, no way, what we're doing comes close to passing a cost benefit test. It's it's just madness. Don Boudreau, American economist, author, professor, co-director of the program on the American economy and globalization at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Don Boudreau, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show as a bridge between our conversation with Don Boudreau from George Mason University about COVID. And uh, coming up next hour, our conversation with a uh, New York City public defender named uh, Janine Unias about uh, COVID lockdown policies. A couple of other notes, because there's so much content on this. I want to keep people apprised, perhaps to allay some of those irrational fears we were talking about with Don Boudreau. Uh, Yale University study. Children's in daycare programs present virtually no risk of transmitting COVID-19 to adults, according to a new Yale University study of more than 57 thousand U.S. child care providers. The study is believed to be the largest of its kind, indicated that keeping child care centers open doesn't contribute to the transmission of the disease as long as, you know, follow the sensible sanitary guidelines like hand washing are followed. Fifty seven thousand child care providers, Yale University study, present virtually no risk of transmitting COVID-19 to adults. The research has broad implications for the U.S. economy, the Wall Street Journal reports. Yeah, not just for the parents who depend on child care for daycare centers, child care workers for 
their ability to work outside the home. But also, if you're talking about prepubescent kids, kids at uh, K through eight, essentially pre-K through eight, then if there's no transmission, virtually no risk of transmitting to adults, then how do the teachers unions continue to argue against grade schools not being open for in-person learning? Does this not demand that they be open for in-person learning? Uh, Speaking of the teachers unions, they uh, are afraid that uh, more flowers are blooming in September, the NEA produced an internal opposition report on Prenda. Prenda is a tiny Arizona-based microschool provider. Basically, it's sort of midway between homeschools and private schools. Microschools bring together a small group of students, 5 to 10, a school at Prenda, usually at a private residence. Then the instruction is handled by an education service provider like Prenda. They provide the teacher. You know, you want to do these uh, little co-ops essentially in your neighborhood or with your your kid and his or her classmates or at least close classmates, or whatever the relationships are, familiar relationships, uh, the relationships between the kids, whatever. This is um, a facilitator and you know nobody has time or the expertise or feel like they have the expertise to teach. Then this is a provider to fill that void. Well, you know, so-called pods, co-ops, micro schools. Today, Prenda administers about around 400 micro schools educating more than 3000 kids. But the NEA's National Education Association Teachers Union report worries that microschools can address some of the structural limitations of homeschooling to take advantage of school choice programs to alleviate some equity issues posed by the cost of hiring your own teachers. The combination could make home education feasible for millions of more millions, more families. And you know what that means? Fewer kids in the government run schools, fewer kids to indoctrinate, fewer kids upon which to justify the salaries and pensions and staff sizes for those public government schools. Uh Uh-oh, don't let innovation innovate us right out of our jobs and the associated salaries and benefits as the teachers unions. What say you? We'll be back with uh, Janine Yunez to continue this conversation in the context of lockdown policies and kids' education in the next hour. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. How long have we been saying on this show that as the evidence rolled in over the last several months in terms of our understanding of COVID-19 and its spread and its impact, our understanding of lockdown policies and their efficacy and their impact? How long have we been saying when somebody says blanket way, no, 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 keep people locked down, keep businesses closed, they're saying I'm rich. When somebody says, no, 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 keep schools closed, keep teachers at home, keep kids at home, just do distance learning, they're saying, I'm rich. How long have you been saying that? I don't know about right from the beginning, but certainly in the last several months as the evidence rolled in on both counts, as I mentioned, it seems like this may be an opportunity for some agreement and coalition building across the political spectrum. A case in point is Janine Eunice, who is a public defender in New York City. Uh, She writes in a recent op-ed over at the American Institute for Economic Research, 
I'm a left-leaning New York City public defender who voted for Bernie Sanders in the 2016 primaries and Hillary Clinton in the general election. I've never voted for a Republican candidate. I chose my career because I wanted to help the most defenseless in our society, indigent people accused and convicted of crimes and facing the awesome power of the state. Until I saw the catastrophic effects that the lockdowns were having on the very people I sought to help. I had never been associated with or or affiliated with any free market or right-wing institutions, she writes. She uh, goes on to say, having spoken with the three scientists who were the charter members of the Great Barrington Declaration that we've been discussing over the last week and talked to many times, Jay Bhattacharya, Sunetra Gupta, Martin Kaldorf, Stanford, Oxford, Harvard. She writes, having spoken with the three scientists on numerous occasions over the course of the weekend, I can say with certainty that neither politics nor free market ideology has anything to do with their decision to write the declaration. They're motivated solely by a concern for public health. For more on her views and uh, what she sees, you know, as a practitioner serving people who are indigent and thus need the public defender's office, we're pleased to be joined by Janine Eunice. Janine, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And so um, what have you seen from your clients? Well, from my clients, I uh, I actually don't see that much from my clients themselves because I do criminal appeals. So most of my clients are actually in prison. I see. But what I've seen from um, other people in the community is children not going to school, poor children especially falling behind. Um, I have a number of friends who are teachers and Um, A lot of children don't have access to laptops. They're in terrible home environments and school is sort of a reprieve for them. Um, And they've been completely deprived of the ability to escape terrible home lives. And now they're falling behind in school. And they will probably, psychologists are saying that they will probably be hindered for the remainder of their lives. Um, And it's it's poor people, most of all, who are suffering, people who can't uh, work. I can work pretty comfortably, and so can most of my friends from my living room. Um, my paycheck hasn't taken a hit. But people who work in restaurants, people who uh, work in service industries, all sorts of other people are the ones who are suffering. And I've been absolutely shocked that people on the left don't seem to care or or understand it. And, and so, um, yes. and you know, I mean, and, and uh, even middle-income uh, families are saying the same thing. I mean, Carol Markowitz writing in the New York Post this week about uh, how the sort of the the back and forth uh, with respect to city and state officials in New York City, and New York State, on whether or not the schools are going to open or not for in-person learning. They were going to open, they're not. They're going to open, they're not. That's really impacting uh, families like hers, too. You can have a middle-income family, middle-income single mom, who uh, has the same sort of exigencies as lower-income families, too, and there's not much consideration for them. Right. I mean, absolutely. And I'm concerned about children across the board. Um, I mean, I don't know what it's doing to their development to live in this sort of fear. I can't imagine it's very good. I think psychologists are also saying that living in such a fearful environment where they're taught to be so afraid of each other, to be afraid of other people and the world. I can't imagine what what that generation is going to be like. Well, and we've seen some of the research I'm sure you've seen as well. Uh, I've talked about this with actually Dr. Bhattacharya the other day, which is uh, uh, 18 to 29 year olds, one in 20, one in, in, in four, 25 percent contemplating suicide, which is uh, significantly higher than uh, normal and uh, in, in part attributable, to, at least in part attributable to um, the lockdown policies of shutdown of, of, you know, their lives effectively. Absolutely. I mean, uh, people that age are their genes, their biology is telling them to go out and socialize. And we're telling them that they're bad people for doing that. And they have to 
stay, you know, away from each other and lock down for, we, we're not even giving them a time frame at this point. It's just indefinite. It's cruel. I think it's extremely cruel and wrong on so many levels. And that's just looking at this country. As Sinatra Gupta has said, 121 million people worldwide are going to be pushed to the brink of starvation. Millions of them will probably die, and especially children who spend some period starving and not getting enough food are physically debilitated for the rest of their lives. So this is just having catastrophic effects, and I it's very hard for me to understand why the liberal left has failed to see it. Uh, Janine, we can't have this conversation without uh, the context of the presidential election, and I wonder what you think if Joe Biden is elected. Do you think this lockdown situation gets better or worse? Yes, I, I actually, for the first time in my life, will not be voting Democrat. Wow. Because of this, because I think the lockdowns are so catastrophic. I fear that this administration is just going to continue to push them. I, I'm actually I'm also against mask wearing. I think it's very bad for our, um, for our psychological well-being, maybe for our physical health, even. And he and Kamala Harris have talked about mask mandates. So um, right. I, I'm deeply concerned about a Biden administration. So uh, are you going to be shopping for some new friends then? Uh, <laughs> the next thing. It's, it's, actually, it's actually already happened. No, I mean, I published in my name, so I've lost most of my friends, but I have some new ones. <laughs> yeah, sure. We're not, you know, we conservatives, uh, you know, like me, um, we're not so bad, uh, Janine. Uh, you, 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 yeah, we're not so bad. We may have some disagreements. We're not that bad. We're not uh, the, you know, the fire-breathing monsters that uh, that some people say we are and so forth. Um, you know, it's funny, oh, too. I know. Um, you know it, it's, it's really interesting uh, because, I mean, your, your position, what you're talking about in terms of a global perspective, I thought we're supposed to think globally and act locally. I remember that in a bumper somewhere. Yeah. Um, Dr. Yeah. David Nabarro, WHO Special Envoy in COVID-19, is saying the same thing that Sunetra Gupta is saying, is saying the same thing that you're saying about the um, supply chains that are being broken and the first world's ability to help the developing world is uh, in, in, endangering the lives of uh, literally 100 million plus people in terms of their food security, as you were describing. I mean, that, that's a real thing. And so, the, the, you know, everything to save one life is allegedly the mantra of the left, but it doesn't seem to be that that's actually their practice. No, no, absolutely not. They've forgotten that people die of things other than coronavirus. <laughs> um, and yeah. it's, it's, we live in an extremely uh, complex, interconnected global world. And you can't just halt things for months or years on end and expect that not to have ripple effects throughout the world. Um, and we don't see those people, so it's easy to ignore them, but it's happening. Uh, so Alex Barisau, who is a USA Today columnist and a Ph.D. microbiologist, uh, we're having this conversation with him yesterday uh, about some of this, uh, including mask policy. And, and he sort of concedes the point, um, although, you know, maybe err on the side of, of wearing masks in close quarters inside and so on and so forth. Oh, OK, fine. I'm not ideological on masks. I don't think most people are. If it makes sense, if there's evidence that it's. Yeah. Uh, that it helps, then fine. If it's just theater, like I, I then then no. Um, yeah. And 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 so uh, you write about this in your piece because Berzow is also talking about the slow death of science because it's become so politicized. And you single out an epidemiologist at Yale named Greg Gonsalves, who is, um, um, you know, r- who referred to. The, the, the uh, position of Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, Dr. Sinetra Gupta, Dr. Martin Kaldorf, again, Stanford, Oxford, Harvard, thousands of other public health professionals who now signed the great Barrington Declaration to bring rationality back to public policy, public health policy. He just called uh, their position bull jive, except he didn't use the word jive. 
And that's not exactly a scientific takedown. Um, and so it speaks to this idea that, you know, I disagree with you politically, so I disagree with you scientifically, which is anti-science. Absolutely. Yeah, his his tweets have gotten even worse since I wrote the piece there. It's mostly just name calling um, and slander. And uh, he's never engaged with any of the uh, arguments that I've made or that the scientists have made. Um, it's it's ridiculous. <laughs> Well, uh, Janine Unius, uh, welcome over. We're happy to Red Rover, Red Rover you over to sanity. Uh, sorry about the fit of insanity you had for the first part of your life. But the next part of your life is going to be so much better. Uh, Janine Unias, public defender. You don't even have to respond to that. I don't want you to lose more friends. Uh, Janine Unias, public defender, New York City. Uh, the piece at AIER.org, which I'll tweet out at Dan Proft is Lockdowners Speak with Privilege and Contempt for the Poor and Working Class. Thanks so much for joining us, Janine. Appreciate it. Thank you. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. I know uh, most of the national attention is on uh, uh, related to big tech is on Twitter and Facebook trying to slow the spread of the Hunter Biden email story. But there is uh, a concurrent issue with big tech that is particularly important to us because it involves our friends Shelby and Eli Steele. We had uh, Shelby Steele on a couple weeks ago to uh, preview the film they just released. Uh, he and his son called What Killed Michael Brown. And it was uh, supposed to be uh, available to live stream on Amazon Prime. Nope. Amazon cancels Shelby Steele. Their reasoning is it doesn't meet Prime Video's content quality expectations. Amazon will not be accepting resubmission of this title, and this decision may not be appealed. Caesar has spoken. The Wall Street Journal opined on this. Jason Riley wrote about it as well. Wall Street Journal editorial board. What killed Michael Brown doesn't fit the dominant narrative of white police officers killing young black men because of systemic racism. As a result said uh, Eli Steele. Amazon rejected it. We were canceled plain and simple, said Eli Steele. Uh, on the, their website, whatkilledmichaelbrown.com, the Steeles offer other options for people looking to watch their documentary, but it's sadly telling about elite political conformity that an intelligent film that gives voice to a variety of people, almost all black, who would otherwise not be heard, is somehow deemed unfit for play company. As Eli Steele puts it, when Amazon rejected us, they also silenced those voices, and that is the great sin of a company that professes to be diverse and inclusive. Uh, you know, the, the, this is getting a bit tiresome, I, I have to say, and I, this is a difficult issue for free marketeers because, on the one hand, it's private company, and there should be no state compulsion with respect to what you must publish or post. But on the other hand, you and you have this uh, with respect to people's uh, Twitter accounts and Facebook accounts and the content regulators by the truth squads of these various uh, big tech platforms. Well, I mean, the New York Times has a big spread. The problem with free speech, it's not so much even where we're at now, because what Amazon has done now is raise the profile on what killed Michael Brown. And hopefully more people will go to the website and, and stream it. And maybe another distributor will come forward and pick it up for wider distribution. I hope so. Because, I mean, Shelby Steele is one of the great intellects on American culture of the last 50 years. This is insanity. It's like what Dr. Jay Bhattacharya said, which is censorship is anti-science. So Google censoring the Great Barrington Declaration 
and all of these renowned scientists like Dr. Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford and Martin Kaldor from Harvard and Sunetra Gupta from Oxford. It's insanity. It's anti-intellectual. It's anti-science. It's anti-truth. But even where we are now is not as concerning as where we're going if the same individuals have complete control of the apparatus of the state. That's the issue. Oh, and by the way, in contrast, right here in Chicago, the ABC affiliate on their Facebook page, this did not get slowed in terms of spread, posted a memorial picture, a headshot with candles around the image of George Floyd today, yesterday, would have been George Floyd's 47th birthday. I'm sorry that George Floyd is dead, just as I'm sorry that anybody dies at the hands of police or in any other way. But 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 excuse me. We have had 625 people murdered in Chicago this year. Uh, How many kids under the age of 18 caught in the crossfire? Are you going to do what would have been their birthday memorials? Are you going to do what would have been David Dorn's 79th birthday on November 26th? Either I am sick or there is something very sick about people like at ABC Chicago who think that is in any way appropriate. One of us has a sickness. I don't know who it is. But we better figure it out to help us figure out to who's sick. <laughs> We're pleased to be joined by Roger Kimball, editor of The New Criterion. Also, he's got a new book out, Who Rules? Sovereignty, Nationalism, and the Fate of Freedom in the 21st Century. Roger, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. What about, uh, I mean, you're a noted intellectual. What about uh, the steel film being uh, shut down by well, Amazon and, and what this says about where we're at? Yeah, well, it's appalling, of course. Um, I haven't seen it, but I, a friend of mine has seen it, says it's terrific. But you were exactly right. If anything that contravenes the dominant narrative, the politically correct, virtue-signaling, woke narrative, is subject to review and cancellation today. <clears throat> and it's an Orwellian situation. You know, at the, at the end of, of 1984, when Orwell's talking about newspeak, mm-hmm. says, you know, the, the, uh, the, the entire deposit of the past, all the literature, all the history will be subject to scrutiny and rewriting to bring it into conformity with what the party demands. Ultimately, Orwell says, there will be no document that has not been rewritten, no statue that will remain standing unless it passes muster. It sounds like a uh, dystopian fantasy, but when you look at what is happening on our college campuses today, where virtue signaling social justice warriors enforce a regime of strict conformity. They talk about diversity, but what they're really about is strict intellectual and moral conformity about any contentious issue. When you look at what these gigantic media companies are doing, like uh, Amazon, and of course, it's not just Amazon, it's Facebook, it's Twitter, it's Google. These companies present themselves as neutral, almost like utilities, that they're just there um, the, the telephone company provides you with telephone service. The electric company provides you with electricity. And Google and Facebook and Twitter and Amazon want to be given similar exemptions from government control. I'm not a big one for government control of uh, almost anything. But I do think that these companies uh, pose a, a very deep problem to 
the free circulation of ideas because they are not neutral providers of the service. They have an ideological agenda. It would be as if the, the electricity company were to deny you electricity because you voted the wrong way or because you made a movie that presented a different point of view about the death of Michael Brown. Everyone knows, everyone who's actually looked into the case knows that Michael Brown was not the gentle giant. He didn't say, don't shoot with his hands up. That is a lie. He, he, he um, uh, went for the, for the policeman's gun. There was a, a tussle in the, in the policeman's car and he was, he was shot assaulting a police officer. That is, that's just the truth. We, we know that. Uh, and, you know, as far as George Floyd goes, I mean, um, we'll, we'll have to wait for a court to know for sure. We, but we do know some things. We know that he had a twice lethal dose of fentanyl in the system when he died. So while he died um, in police custody, it's not at all clear that he died as the result of uh, police action, uh, notwithstanding uh, that uh, video showing the police officer um, restraining him. Uh, if there's other um, video footage that presents a different picture, and we'll ha just have to wait and see. And it's um, uh, anyone who talks about the murder of George, George Floyd at this point, I think, is um, speaking out of turn because we don't know that he was murdered. Well, we well, 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 actually, in point of fact, uh, St. Louis prosecutors declined to prosecute. So uh, that, that should tell you a lot. And those are not uh, conservative Republicans down there in the St. Louis prosecutor's office. Indeed. Indeed. He is Roger Kimball, editor of The New Criterion. His new book, Who Rules? Sovereignty, Nationalism, and the Fate of Freedom in the 21st Century. That's released on Election Day. Uh, Pre-order it now as long as Amazon will let you pre-order it. Uh, Roger Kimball, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Show.com. Welcome back to the show. We're going to continue our conversation about uh, big tech and uh, big tech censorship that we began with uh, Roger Kimball before the break, specifically talking about uh, Shelby Steele, Shelby and Eli Steele, his son's new film, what killed Michael Brown being uh, essentially delisted by Amazon Prime. It's not being accepted for streaming at Amazon.prime after the impression was for months, as the documentary was being produced, that it would be. I mean, Shelby Steele, again, one of the great cultural, the intellects on culture and race relations of the last 50 years in this country, dating back to the civil rights movement in the 60s, like many conservative black Americans who <laughs> the left does and the big tech part of the left does their best to try to silence. So here we are again. This combined with, of course, the bigger story politically because of the election, this uh, New York Post story about Hunter Biden emails from a computer that was turned over to a Delaware store and then turned over to uh, Rudy Giuliani, it would appear, that uh, contain what appear pending authentication to be emails that suggest that Joe Biden was not telling the truth when he said he had no involvement with his son Hunter's business dealings. And point of fact, Hunter Biden, according to an email, orchestrating a meeting between Joe Biden and this executive at Burisma, where he was on the board at the time, back in 2017. 
Yesterday, John Paul Mac Isaac, the owner of the computer store in question, gave sort of a rambling, difficult-to-follow interview to press about the particulars of how he came upon this computer at his repair shop, who dropped it off, his contact with or not with the FBI, and what direction that contact occurred. Same thing with Rudy Giuliani. I don't know that it was helpful of much, and it certainly wasn't conclusive in terms of authentication. But uh, nonetheless, the larger question is Facebook and Twitter putting the halt on the dissemination of this New York Post story. Also suspending the account, as we spoke with earlier in the show with Mark Lauder from the Trump campaign, suspending the account of Kaylee McEnany for posting the Post story. It seems like the question that uh, our friend Khalif Lataro uh, raises in his most recent piece at Real Clear Politics is uh, social media more harmful than helpful to our representative republic is a one to revisit yet again. Khalif Lataro is a Real Clear Media fellow, senior fellow at the George Washington University Center for Cyber and Homeland Security. Khalif, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me again. Uh, it still it seems like we continue uh, rapidly along the same trajectory we've been on. No amount of documentaries, uh, no amount of whistleblowers, no amount of curious terminations, no amount of uh, even more curious suspensions can stop big tech from deciding what content is uh, acceptable in discourse and and what content is not. And uh, they're happily willing to marginalize those whose views they find objectionable. What's amazing here is that there's been kind of this building of big tech slowly ramping up its kind of censorship. And then this year has really been a watershed. You've sort of seen them, you know, before they were very cautious, you know, they would do something and kind of see how everyone reacted and then take these baby steps. This year, it's sort of like they don't care anymore. They're just content to do anything that they want. What's interesting is you have the mainstream media really cheering them on and saying, this is great. You know, last week, for the first time ever, actually halted Donald Trump from being able to tweet. It's one thing to flag his tweet. So he says something, you flag it. But last week, you know, they actually paused his account. It prevented him from being able to post. And when I said, you know, I asked the company, I said, well, what would have happened if a natural disaster occurred, a cyber attack, terror attack, earthquake, would you have reacted his account? What would have happened there? And just silence. You know, and then, of course, you know, yesterday, you know, you still don't know a lot of details about how these emails came to be or any of the details. But what's so fascinating to me is kind of this disconnect between, you know, when the quote unquote Trump dossier came out and, you know, you had the media just happily reporting, regurgitating that out there, no censorship. And what's interesting is yesterday, you know, Twitter initially said, well, this is material that was released without authorization. And so that's why we're not going to allow it to be out there. But then that raises the question, well, you know, when the New York Times used Trump's tax returns without authorization, that wasn't seen as a problem. What's interesting is kind of dual standard. Because you think about it, investigative journalism, part of that is oftentimes relying on new material that was not voluntarily provided. And that's where so much of this comes from. And if you look at these policies on the surface, you know, Twitter initially said, well, it's because the material wasn't, you know, released. And then eventually under pressure, uh, you know, they pointed to one of the policies that says the material may have been hacked and we don't allow hacked material to be reported. But their policy says news media is exempted. So then they had to clarify again and say, well, it's because there's a screenshot of one of the things in there. Then they had to clarify again uh, as that got shot down and, uh, and say, you know, you can, they didn't redact the email addresses. And so in the emails, you can see if they'd redacted the email addresses, you know, it might have been different. You know, again, it's that story just constantly changes. And Facebook, uh, you know, their response is, well, because we don't know if it's real or not. 
We're waiting for our fact checkers, yeah, to give us the high sign. I want to, uh, when we come back, I want to get your reaction specifically to what Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey tweeted out regarding this controversy. More with Khalif Lataro, Real Clear Media Fellow and Senior Fellow at the George Washington University Center for Cyber and Homeland Security, right after this. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Khalif Otaro, who is the Real Clear Media Fellow, Senior Fellow at the George Washington University Center for Cyber and Homeland Security. And Khalif, as we're talking about Twitter and Facebook's response to this New York Post story about Hunter Biden's alleged emails, Jack Dorsey tweeted out, our communication around our actions on the New York Post article was not great. And blocking URL sharing via tweet or DM with zero context as to why we're blocking, unacceptable. What does that tell you about Twitter's sensitivity to uh, public opinion with respect to their censorship policies? It's a fascinating one because most companies tend to provide sort of a unified front. First off, you have the spokespeople say something. Then if that doesn't qualify, the CEO gets up and reads from a script. You know, Twitter has always operated a little bit differently. Dorsey kind of operates from afar. If the public pressure gets too big, he kind of acts, you know, good cop, bad cop, coming in there and saying, gee, uh, you know, they didn't do things right. And this seems to sort of fall into that general category of, you know, him publicly saying, boy, we did an unacceptable job here. But you'll notice there he didn't change anything. He didn't say, we got this wrong. We're going to allow sharing again. His only comment was, we didn't explain ourselves well enough, but the rules still stand. We're still blocking sharing of this story. You pose this question. I mean, these are just two good examples. Another one we talked about in this show, which you write about, is Yelp's new policy of identifying businesses that suborn racist behavior. I mean, talk about opening up a hornet's nest with that sort of thing. But uh, they don't seem to care. I mean, this is, you know, all part of uh, Yelp's new woke policy or whatever they're calling about. They're going to eradicate racism by uh, amplifying everybody who has a complaint, regardless of the potential merit of that complaint. Uh, Jesse Smollett's going to have a field day. So the implications of policies like you're seeing play out with Facebook and Twitter on political content, policies that uh, really impact people's business and professional lives, like the Yelp policy I just referenced. And, you know, what you see in terms of how that is going to comport with our civil society. What's so specific about the Yelp policy, what, what really struck me was, you could say if they're relying on police reports, court reports, forensic analysis of video, et cetera, you could at least say there's evidence here. What, what's so fascinating about the Yelp policy is they say, for verification, they're going to rely on news reporting. If a news article says something, that's verification. That to me is, is this really striking thing because this is that challenge that's coming in of, what is truth? As, as social media companies decide that, you know, we've got to cut down on falsehoods spreading around the web, what is truth? How do you decide that? And what was interesting is I talked to Facebook and I said, well, back in February, you had the government say, don't wear a mask. Now they're saying wear a mask. You know, how do you decide what's truth? You know, someone had posted back in February, wear a mask. Would you have deleted that? And the answer I got back from Facebook was these are really hard problems. And we hope that the government steps in and actually basically outlines these things so that we as a private company don't have to do that. That's insane. And because what you're saying they're doing and what they're actually doing is deciding who are oracles of truth and who are not. They're not deciding on the merits. They're saying, if this is somebody I like because I like government agencies, then I'm going to take their word for it. If it's somebody I don't like because it's a conservative business owner, then I'm not going to take their word for it. That's what they're really doing. 
what's interesting about this is when you get the truth, I mean, think of the Tara Reid case against Biden. Me too. We have to believe all the stories. Then one surfaces against Biden and it's silence. What's so interesting about this, take Facebook's new policy where they said we're not letting this Biden story circulate because we're not sure if it's true yet. They haven't, to my knowledge, this is the first time they've actually done this, and the company has refused to comment whether they've ever done this before. Imagine a week from now, another terror read shows up and says, Joe Biden assaulted me, you know, 20 years ago. That story under Facebook's new policy, Facebook is going to have to make a decision. Do they believe the story or not? And they're going to have to silence that person or, or allow that story to go. And, and this is a very dangerous place when you allow these private companies operating in this black box to decide, you know, what's true, what's not. And, you know, a First Amendment doesn't apply here. They alone decide. And, you know, the way I always summarize this is, ask your nearest Alexa device, is Amazon a monopoly? It won't hesitate to say, Amazon is not a monopoly. You know, and pretty soon, that's what's going to happen when you post something online. You know, it's interesting, too, on the Yelp thing, the whole idea of, oh, a news article is the all the verification we need. You could have a news article, some local blog and so forth that with it, you know, somebody made an allegation. Somebody else responded that it's not true or put it in context. But as long as you have the flag on your business that some racist event occurred there or alleged racist event occurred there, somebody said a crossword to somebody, it could have been patrons, it could have been staff and a patron. And you've got a a news blurb about it. Then you get that scarlet Yelp brand on your business, I mean, that could destroy your business. And, you know, I know there's legal remedies like uh, for Yelp users who've slandered businesses uh, saying things that were untrue. But I mean, you know, small business people can't afford to be litigating these matters all the time. This is really problematic. The other issue, too, is, is again, it comes back to, you know, if you rely on a police report, then at least, you know, the person went to the police, they made an accusation, and at least then, you know, there's consequences for it. And there's at least some level of vetting there versus just you got some local newspaper to write about it. And, you know, I think it was University of Albany, I think was the, the famous case. We had the group of women that boarded the bus and then reported that they had been attacked and led to this, this huge situation that eventually when the police got involved and went for surveillance video from the bus, it turns out that the story was, was very different and, you know, it all sort of imploded. And that's one of the challenges here is that the whole goal of media nowadays, unfortunately, is to be first, not to be right. And also on the score, too, there's some things that are not objectionable that are not illegal. So in terms of your police report, so you can say a crossword, you can even say something that people would say is uh, racist or intemperate in some way. Um, what, what Yelp is doing now is saying, we're going to hold you responsible for the conduct of or the speech of someone else, even if it's not a crime, but it's a thought crime on your premises. I, I mean, you know, that that is the definition of Orwellian. Well, and that's what's interesting, too, is, you know, our legal system here, you know, was built because of what happened, you know, in in Europe, this idea that laws could be constantly changed, that you could be, you know, put in jail. And there's still many countries in the world where you can be put in jail for thinking a bad thought against the government. But in this country, you know, our legal system was designed very carefully so that you can express what you feel. And, you know, what, what, what we're seeing here is Silicon Valley, you know, there are a lot of people that don't like that. They want to be able to enforce acceptable speech rules, enforce acceptable idea rules. And we can't do that under our legal system. So Silicon Valley is stepping into that void and setting it up so that even if the law says you can say whatever you want, if the mediums through which you do that, Twitter, Facebook, et cetera, if they block you from saying anything or, or publishing stories that they don't like, then, you know, it doesn't matter what the law says that you can or can't do. If you physically can't do it, it's, it's the same thing. And that's just so powerful that a handful of companies now, and they're not just for the U.S., 
you know, China can censor people in China. It can't censor us here in the U.S. Facebook and Twitter censor the entire planet. And that's what's so frightening about this is yeah. they can just disappear something globally. When, uh, when we come back, I, I want to get to your take in the limit time we have on the, that documentary, The Social Dilemma. And if you think that would be the impetus for reform in big tech, uh, at least the, the prospectively reform in big tech. More with Khalid Latoro right after this. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Khalif Laturo, Real Clear Media Fellow, Senior Fellow at the George Washington University Center for Cyber and Homeland Security. He has written a good piece about big tech, social media's role in democracy, more harmful than helpful, question mark. I wanted to get your take on the social dilemma, this documentary that came out in, in the last few weeks that has gotten a lot of buzz, particularly among parents, thinking about screen time, thinking about the addictive nature of these social media platforms and these um, sort of cast outs from and some self-exiled from the big tech companies, Facebook and Twitter and Google, gave you know, real texture to some of what we already suspected to be true, knew to be true, but real texture and detail that I think expands the understanding of just how extensive it is, how big it is, how all-consuming it is. And so what is to be done about it? The question is, does the reform of big tech, to the extent that's possible, do you see that coming from inside Silicon Valley, inside big tech, from those individuals like the men and women who are profiled in that documentary? I'm pessimistic that Silicon Valley can fix itself. You know, you think about it, these companies, their money machine essentially is firing us up. And so, you know, you, I can't really imagine a Silicon Valley that doesn't have suffered from all these issues because we have to have a reason to go back. It's kind of like, why don't we have all these issues with LinkedIn? Well, because LinkedIn is where you go for business. You go there actually to learn things, to network. It's these other platforms that we really seem to be having all these issues with. I don't see that can be reformed there. Well, I, I just so then then some of what else has been proposed. I mean, is it everything from tax policy to to removing the indemnification for defamation suits? Did anything that you've heard, breaking them up? I mean, if you really want to get drastic antitrust policy, anything that you've heard that you think may have some promise to, if the goal is a more even-handedness? See, I don't know that breaking them up is going to do anything because I think this is not a necessarily a monopoly issue. It's more the fact that they're able to control speech. Even if you broke them up, they'd have that control speech. To me, the answer really is transparency. You know, a Twitter today can block all posts to the New York Post and not say a word about it. Just do it. A snap of a finger. Never, they're never accountable to anyone. There'll never be a postmortem. Jack can say, hey, you know what? We didn't communicate well, but no harm, no foul. And so to me, what, what you really need is transparency. Like if the public knew what these companies were doing and if the companies had to be accountable, because right now the public's being told, hey, you know, guess what? We're, we're doing all the censorship. We're doing all this stuff, but it's for your own good. And it's, it's a good thing. Just trust us. And the public has nothing, no, nothing to question. If the public actually saw, here's what's 
really happening. Here's what they're blocking every day. Here's what they're, you know, they've decided is okay and not okay. It's like when The Guardian published uh, Facebook's internal documents that said anti-Semitism is okay. You can do it. That provoked this huge backlash and forced the company to shift. When they published that violence against women was okay, according to Facebook's rules, that prompted a pushback and they changed the rules. And so I think transparency, uh, transparency is really the, the way to go because it gets the public mobilized and the public can weigh in and say, guess what, this isn't acceptable and push the politicians that otherwise are not going to break up something that makes money and you know helps them get reelected. It's the transparency, I think, is the way to go. Khalif Latara, Real Clear Media Fellow, Senior Fellow at the George Washington University Center for Cyber and Homeland Security. Khalif, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com on social media at Dan Proft Show. Uh, and an exchange on Wednesday, the last day of senatorial questioning of Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett between her and Chris Coons of Delaware, former Joe Biden seatmate. Sure. Um, I thought was a telling uh, something about culture too, more than just about this process, more than just about uh, Democrat senators uh, trying to use this four day event as a, uh, uh, a campaign exercise to advance the electoral interests of Joe Biden Something about our culture, uh, when you care, uh, when you compare the life and times of a- Amy Coney Barrett to the life and times of so many of the people that were questioning her, uh, this is uh, Amy Coney Barrett is just going to be Scalia redux. Uh, a, a case comes before the court. She's going to go see how Scalia decided a, the case uh, uh, on a similar matter, the, how Scalia decided a similar case, and she's just going to cut and paste his argument essentially was the implication of Chris Coons's inquiry. And uh, Amy Coney Barrett responded thusly. And I hope that you aren't suggesting that I don't have my own mind or that I, I couldn't think independently or that I would just decide, like, oh, let me see what Justice Scalia has said about this in the past, because I assure you I have my own mind. Um, but it, everything that he said um, is not necessarily what I would agree with or what I would do if I were Justice Barrett. That was Justice Scalia. So I share his philosophy, but I've never said that I would always reach the same outcome as he did. Yeah, I have my own mind. Wouldn't necessarily reach the same outcome. It seems to me uh, we have a situation where we have a lot of cardboard cutout human beings that are one dimensional. Those would be the politicians Earl Shived into looking somewhat consequential. And then you have somebody who is actually a three dimensional human being with uh, uh substantive uh, accomplishments and uh, uh, lives within the life that she leads. And so then the cardboard cutout human beings try to turn her into a caricature that they've turned herself into, that they've turned themselves into. That's the only way we know how to deal with it. So Ibram Kendi, the uh, white, or the uh, uh, 
anti-racism professor now at Boston University, calls her a white colonizer. That's all you need to know about Amy Coney Barrett. She adopted two black children from Haiti. She's a white colonizer. Caricature. Uh, she was a clerk for Scalia. She's a Scalia mini-me. Caricature. For more on culture, uh, pleased to be joined again by Rusty Reno, who's the editor at First Things, firstthings.com. He's uh, recently written an extensive piece, uh, Shakespearean, and it's... Uh, the implication of its uh, title, at least, The Season of Our Discontent. Rusty, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Great to be with you, Dan. Great uh, to be with your listeners. Yes, thank you uh, again for joining us. And and so w- what about that? You you wrote extensively in, in your piece I just referenced about sort of where we are culturally and in all aspects of culture and, um, it, and how Amy Coney Barrett was treated, particularly the aspects of her life where she is almost um, – uh, where, where she has nothing but accomplishments to brandish, how she was treated by uh, the senators who disagree with her philo- philosophically or politically. Doesn't that speak to our culture? Do you agree with my assessment? Yes. I think what we see is the inability of secular liberal establishment to really be able to comprehend people like us. I mean, the idea yeah. of the New York Times, she leads a very traditional life, and you want to say hello, I mean, this extraordinarily accomplished professional woman, you know, with a very large family, adopting children, her natural children, uh, that's hardly the Brady Bunch. Um, I mean, it's hardly, uh, I mean, it's hardly the 1950s model. I mean, it's a very distinctive way for a woman to live in the 21st century, and uh, I find it to be extraordinarily admirable to combine giving back to the community through her own professional ability, at the same time, you know, discharging her her vocation as a, as a mother and a wife. Um, I think that's that's extraordinary. That's a, that's a unique and it's exemplary and should be should be celebrated rather than demonized, as I think so many have. And she has to be force-fed through uh, the same protocols as any other uh, person with whom some people disagree by those people. So, for example, right, the, the woman with seven kids and, and uh, a, a storied record as a law professor, now as an appellate court judge with uh, uh, two of those uh, children being from Haiti, adopted from Haiti, she still has to answer the question of whether or not she renounces white supremacy. She still has. She still. <laughs> it's I, a kind of a ritual. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I see two things at work here, right? Part of it is uh, partisan season, and you try to play gotcha, and the left uses the white supremacy as a gotcha um, uh, label. You know, racism as the great disqualifier across the board, so it's not surprising. But what's more, what's more telling is just the bafflement with which the mainstream media has responded to her life story. Well, right. Can't, right. can't process it. Right. Can't process it, right? right? So she's what she's you know, she's been habituated in the submissive female role in the people of praise community dot 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 and you just want to think what what is this journalist thinking? I mean, just look at what's in who's in front of you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> forceful, accomplished, uh independent, uh minded person. So independent-minded that she didn't go down the path, of, uh, which is the kind of Ivy League lockstep path for so many professional women of her generation, um, which tends to think that they have to choose between 
um, vocational satisfaction in the workplace and family. Yeah, when in it, fact, I think Barrett yeah. shows that no, you really, you really can, you you can pursue these two things, um, and 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 have a fuller life. We don't have to have these narrow lives where career is be the be all and end all. The other thing uh, I thought was interesting was her response to to Lindsey Graham's question on Tuesday. What uh, what do you think about being nominated to the Supreme Court? And she talked about the trials and tribulations, the calculation that uh, she and her husband made in terms of does this make sense? And she ultimately said, look, uh, if I believe uh, in the things that I believe in, then I'm going to act in furtherance of them. This is an opportunity. Other people could do this job, but I've been asked to do this job. And as somebody who essentially believes in the idea of being a servant leader, I, I, that's why I accepted the job. And it, it, it's, it uh, spoke to me of what you write about in your piece, uh, her gratitude for the opportunities, her gratitude for what she's been able to accomplish on her own merits, but nonetheless gratitude that she could do so. And that quality, gratitude, is so absent from our culture, replaced with entitlement in many different forms. It, it's The disposition of gratitude is, uh, I mean, not only is it... Um, you know, it, it conduces to humility, but it also brings joy. Uh, and I, I think you see that in her, that, you know, she's ambitious, I'm sure, and, and ambition in a proper uh, uh, framework is a good, a good thing. But, you know, it's in a, it's in a larger framework. And having, putting it in a larger frame of, of framework of gratitude, I think, is part of why, um, why she's really kind of unable, the Democrats have been unable, unable to pin anything on her. Um, not just because she's, you know, an exemplary person, but because I think the, the public recognizes that this is, you know, essentially a, a person with a, a spirit of public service. Uh, that, that's we we need a lot of that right no, now. That's for sure. No question. And and the the question is, can you have a, a conversation with uh, your fellow citizens about this, or does does even this have to devolve into like sign wars or your front yards. I'm for Amy Coney Barrett. And then the, your neighbor is, I'm against Amy Coney Barrett. Now that that's in lieu of conversation. You write about this, the sign wars that aren't just about candidates anymore. They're, they're about messages. Here's my identity. Uh, hate has no home here. Here's my identity, something. And, and this, this, the, the, this, the, the signs are sort of signs of the times, literally and figuratively. <laughs> Indeed. Well, I think our society has become de-Christianized, and politics is always we always live in the danger that politics will flood and into uh, the vacuum and take the place of religion and become you know the thing that we're most loyal to and this this you know can be fatal to civil peace we always have to recognize that our political judgments are very important and we ought to fight for what we think is right for our society but it's under the, it's relativized by a deeper commitment, which is commitment. That's really what is the most fundamental thing and should be the most fundamental thing for us as believers. He is Rusty Reno, the editor at FirstThingsFirstThings.com. I will tweet out his piece at Dan Prof show, The Season of Our Discontent. Do check it out. Rusty, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Great to be. Thanks. Take, take care. Take Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Roman Mars, creator and host of the podcast 99% Invisible, co-host of What Trump Can Teach Us About Con Law, and he's also the author of this new book I've been perusing, New York Times bestseller, The 99% Invisible City, A Field Guide to the Wonders of the Modern Metropolis. Boy, uh, this couldn't be uh, more timely in a sense because it's all about um, sort of the uh, nerdly interest in civic infrastructure, signage, sidewalk markings, traffic signals, plaques, statues, well, plaques and statues. Um, there's some renovation going on in, in that space. But it's it's very interesting, and uh, it is worthwhile. I'm going to start taking more notice of the civic infrastructure as I ambulate around Chicago since um, you know me and most of the people who live in big cities will not be living there for very much longer. For more on uh, Life After People in Urban America, we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid Roman Mars. Roman, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so, um, you know, your, um, I, I guess starting just because this book is very different, your interest in civic infrastructure and uh, how do you think civic infrastructure is being treated in these times? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's kind of an interesting reflection. Like the, mostly the show Nine Hundred Percent Invisible is kind of about the built world and how we use it as a lens to sort of examine like stories of who we are as humans and what we value and what we're interested in. Mm-hmm. And the cities are a reflection of that. No, there's no question. And, and I mean, the architecture uh, that uh, adorns big cities, uh, the, the, the way that uh, cultural institutions are presented, uh, obviously statues and memorials speak to the sort of people that we suggest be emulated, the the, sure. the the character of those individuals or the accomplishment of those individuals and and so uh, that that seems to be changing now but but i mean even y- your perspective on and the future of of the city of the urban metropolis uh, given what you see happening with the emptying out of so many yeah i mean well i think it's it's sort of interesting to when we enter into a city in our lives you know we often sort of think the city is the way it is and always has been but it's always been changing, and the book is kind of all about that, all mm-hmm. the, the, how we got to now. And right now, we're seeing some of the biggest changes in cities in our lifetimes. So we're seeing all the sort of soft infrastructure that sort of came up when uh, you know COVID showed up, and there was tape on the floor, and there was uh, plexiglass between us and the people who were uh, checking us out at the supermarket, and, and also you know experiments with how the roads are used, um, and that's kind of a new development. And, you know, for the past hundred years, roads have all been about cars, but, you know, roads for millennia were not just about cars. They were all about all kinds of things. They were about people and uh, use roads, walk on the streets, bicycles, trolley cars, and automobiles. And, uh, and then it became the domain of just cars. And now people are realizing, well, maybe we need some more space outside. So we're going to take over streets a little bit. And all that is just a reflection of our needs and values, and it's always ever-changing. And so I'm kind of interested in looking at the little details that uh, indicate the sort of ad hoc you know, like collection of solutions that a city you know, is and what makes it up and the way it is today. Uh, yeah, well, it'll be interesting uh, in terms of the future uh, presentation of cities if you have people who don't want to use mass transportations. I mean, yeah, you've had so many cities be remade, as you were describing, bike lanes and and divvy bikes and scooters and all these other um, sort of public assets that, in terms of individual transportation. But in terms of tra- in terms of using the L in Chicago or the MTA in New York, 
um, right now people aren't so keen on that, and uh, and sure. and those are big expenses to underwrite for a city or for a state or the combination of the two and some Fed too, and so boy that that could really remake the cities if you start to move away from mass transit. Yeah, I mean for sure. I mean I think that was sort of actually gaining more purchase in the world mass transit, and it sort of took a real hit in the Bay Area. Bart ridership is down something like 90%, um, which is a rational reaction. So when you're not supposed to be like cooped up in spaces with people because of like an epidemic, but I sort of, you know, like I sort of wonder about the resiliency of cities and, and, you know, the, the 1918 flu epidemic, you know, we, until this one, I heard people barely talk about it when they talked about like the, the, the culture and nature of the twenties. Uh, you know, like it's sort of a forgotten for a hundred years. So I really don't know in the end, or I don't know if anyone knows if w- this will be the climate in which cities sort of develop in the next 10 years or the next two or, you know, next 20, you know, it's, it's really hard to see. Well, we have another roaring twenties uh, a century later, but it's an interesting question. Um, also though, too, is, you know, uh, cities can change over time, as you were saying. Also the, um, the, the 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 cities that are the centers of various activities. So, for example, uh, New York City, which was the certainly the Western Hemisphere center of banking, that's changing. And uh, Charlotte is soon to be really the nation's banking center with uh, the amount of big banks that are moving their corporate headquarters to North Carolina, Charlotte specifically, for example. Um, also, uh, tech startups in places like Austin. So it could be uneven it could just as it's been uneven for the the big cities previously it could be uneven in terms of the cities that recover people that are moving to nashville and austin and dallas and charlotte uh versus and then fleeing new york and san francisco and la and chicago yeah i mean that is definitely possible and and i've i've heard like real estate speculation in places like Santa Fe and, you know, things like that where people can get space and, you know, afford a little bit more. Um, if they can work anywhere, people will, will spread out a little bit. That's, I think that seems to be something that we'll see um, born out in the next few years for sure. And, uh, and, and, and the other issue too, I mean, there was the um, a story in the wall street journal, uh, I think today, today or yesterday that uh, commercial retail, uh, Real estate in New York is going for 80 percent off its pre-pandemic rents. Mm-hmm. And um, so the, um, the just the economics that will force changes in how big cities operate and, and frankly, their vitality. Yeah, but, you know, cities always go through these types of cycles. I mean, this is really one of them. And it's still an extreme one uh, in our times. But, you know, there was a whole period of time where. Um, the bottom half of Manhattan was completely hollowed out because small manufacturing and factories all closed. Mm-hmm. And that be- and that became the space that um, artists moved into and created Soho and created the most, you know, expensive rental market, you know, in the world, one of them. Um, all because they just reconceived of a space and then all of a sudden the aesthetics of a place that had exposed bricks and exposed pipes, which used to be something that you would never live in, became the thing that, everyone wanted to live in. And so, um, you know, these things go through cycles and adaptive reuse is a huge part of the way cities operate. And I'm sure we will see some of it here. I don't know how you adaptively reuse 
a completely atrocious office park, for example. Uh, Roman Mars, creator and uh, and host of the podcast 99% Invisible, co-host of What Trump Can Teach Us About Con Law, and author of the new book, a New York Times bestseller that we were just discussing, The 99% Invisible City, A Field Guide to the Wonders of the Modern Metropolis. Roman, uh, thanks for joining us. Continued success with the book. Thank you so much, Rob. Down on Main Street. Down on Main Street. Show.com. Welcome back to the show. Transitioning from discussion of the future of America's cities to the future of America's high court. The uh, confirmation hearing of Amy Coney Barrett this week. We're going to speak with Andy McCarthy right after the break. But I thought the, this piece by uh, Peachy Keenan at AmericanMind.org, the audacity of Amy Peachy Keenan and Noam de Plume, I'm sure. Here she is, Mrs. America. Amy Coney Barrett rode into D.C. a few weeks ago like a Valkyrie galloping forth to vanquish foes in her Honda Odyssey minivan. Pretty vivid and accurate. Impervious to the slings and arrows of sputtering Democrats, immune to the dastardly virus someone snuck into her Rose Garden event, she smiled, presented her lovely parade of children, and introduced herself to the country. And a fine introduction it was. And it was interesting to uh, watch demagogues like... uh, T-Bone, Booker, Spartacus, if you prefer, try to get Amy Coney Barrett to take positions on moral issues that would necessarily implicate her opinions on legal issues. An example of this that occurred on Wednesday was as to this, you know, apropos of nothing, what is your view on parents being separated from their children as if it's not a thinly veiled attempt to get her to weigh in on federal immigration policy. Of course, she didn't take the bait because she's smarter than Cory Booker. Do you think it's wrong to separate children from their parents to deter immigrants from coming to the United States? Well, Senator Booker, that's been a matter of policy debate. And, you know, obviously that's a matter of hot political debate in which I can't express a view or be drawn into as a judge. So I, I, I respect that a lot, but I think the underlying question is actually not hotly debated. And and just maybe I'll answer it, ask it one more time. Do you think it's wrong to separate a child from their parent, not for the safety of the child or parent, but to send a message? Uh, as a human being, do you believe that that's wrong? Well, Senator, I think you're trying to engage me on the administration's border separation policies, and I can't express a view on that. So... I'm not expressing assent or dissent with the morality of that position. I just can't be drawn into a debate about the administration's immigration policy. Right. And, and of course, the question does have implications. um, But a very simple, um, as I said yesterday, that we're debating things that, to me, are basic questions of human rights. I would have answered if I was Amy Coney Barrett, which is why I would never be confirmed by the Senate, because I don't think I could help but respond to this nonsense with snark. Senator Booker, how did you get into Stanford University? I really, it's baffling. Even a more ham-handed attempt at uh, trying to get her on the record on issues that, you know, potentially raise concerns about abiding the canons as it pertains to topics and cases that could come before her as a sitting Supreme Court justice. 
Enter Kamala Harris, another overrated state attorney general, former state attorney general, who uh, tried it this way. And um, do you accept that COVID-19 is infectious? I, I think, yes, I do accept that COVID-19 is infectious, that that's something of which I feel like, you know, we could say you take judicial notice of. It's an obvious fact. Yes. Do you accept that smoking causes cancer? I'm not sure exactly where you're going with this, but, you know, the, the notice that it's smoking causes... The question, the question is what it is. You can answer it if you believe um, yes or no. <laughs> Senator Harris, yes, every package of cigarettes warns that smoking causes cancer. And do you believe that climate change is happening and is threatening um, the air we breathe and the water we drink? Um, Senator, again, I was wondering where you were going with that. Now um, we know. You have asked me a series of questions like, that are completely uncontroversial, like whether COVID-19 is infectious, whether smoking causes cancer, and then trying to analogize that to eliciting an opinion on me that is a very contentious matter, opinion from me that is on a very contentious matter. Yeah, I mean, she has the patience of Joe, baby Coney Barrett. I mean, it's so juvenile, these attempts to get through the back door, what they can't get through the front door. Um, Tiresome, really. And all it would have been nice since everybody was presenting their poster boards throughout the hearing, all the the Senate Democrats, at least. Uh, If you couldn't do the video, maybe a poster board with a picture of Justice Ginsburg and the quotation from her confirmation hearing in 1993 about how she should be judged in that hearing as a judge, not as an advocate. And so she can't answer questions that demand that she take a position one way or the other as an advocate. It's the same exact posture that Amy Coney Barrett took during her two days of questioning. Listen to RGB back in 93. You are well aware that I come to this proceeding to be judged as a judge, not as an advocate. Because I am and hope to continue to be a judge, it would be wrong for me to say or to preview in this legislative chamber how I would cast my vote on questions the Supreme Court may be called upon to decide. Good enough for RBG, but not good enough for ACB, so say Senate Democrats. We'll be back with more on this topic when NRO's Andy McCarthy, former U.S. Attorney, Chief U.S. Attorney in Manhattan, joins us. Stay tuned. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Talking about uh, day two of the senator's questioning of Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, preview uh, the final day today with uh, witnesses for the two sides, effectively. One of the um, more bizarre performances over the last two days has come from Amy Klobuchar. I mean, I know it's tough to beat Maisie Hirano. And, and you also had um, the uh, Cory Booker question about uh, renouncing white supremacy. You know, perhaps my two Haitian children could speak to that answer. Amy Klobuchar, though, on, on this uh, new connection she discovered just recently between Roberts, Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Baird and and isn't this an interesting coincidence? It's, maybe there's a conspiracy afoot. If you are confirmed, the Supreme Court will have not one, not two, but three justices. 
you, Justice Kavanaugh, and Chief Justice Roberts, who worked on behalf of the Republican Party in matters related to the Bush v. Gore case. Do you think that that's a coincidence? Um, Senator Klobuchar, if you're asking me whether I was nominated for this seat because I worked on Bush versus Gore for a very brief period of time as a young associate, uh, that doesn't make sense to me. Makes sense. Uh, this is a Senate confirmation hearing. What does sense have to do with anything? For more uh, on all of this, we're pleased to be joined by Andy McCarthy, former chief assistant U.S. attorney in Manhattan, contributing editor, National Review, author of the bestseller, Fall of Collusion, the plot to, to rig an election and destroy a presidency. Andy, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. And, and thank you for playing those clips. It, it occurs to me that, you know, Obamacare again and again and again was the big issue uh, the last couple of days. No one mentioned, unless I missed it, and I watched it pretty closely, but maybe it happened, uh, that Elena Kagan was the solicitor general of the Obama administration when Obamacare was being formulated and worked with the administration uh, to prepare for legal attacks on Obamacare and then did not recuse herself right. when the Supreme Court had the two Obamacare cases. So I just feel like I'm living on another planet here. Well, in addition to you know what you've heard from justices uh, going back for generations, including Ruth Bader Ginsburg at her 93 confirmation, saying, look, I, I'm, I'm a judge. I'm not an advocate. I need to be evaluated as a judge, not an advocate. I can't answer political questions, policy questions. That's not my role here that uh, RBG standard uh, doesn't apply to ACB, it would appear. Yeah, I think that's right. And look, I have to tell you, uh, over the years, I've been very sympathetic to the idea that now what the, what the nominee should answer is a separate question. But the fact that the senators ask these nominees for what their policy preferences are is an unsurprising fallout of the fact that for the last half century, the court has become a much more political institution than it used to be. And I think if it's going to act like a super legislature, it's perfectly fair to ask these guys and gals what their positions are. I think it was right for someone like Barrett not to answer because the conservative oriented judge, and I wish this this point had been made, I mean, she made it as well as it could be made, but I, I think it hasn't penetrated yet. But the conservative oriented judge is not there to do policy. She's precisely not there to do policy. You know, the liberal judges are much more apt to use the court as a vehicle for social change, whereas the conservative judge is taking the position the court has to have a restrained role and policy supposed to be made by the political branches. So, But if the court's going to get political, they're going to be treated like legislators at these confirmation hearings. Perhaps the institutions that have suffered the most over the last two days are Georgetown and Yale Law School, because that's where Dick Durbin got his law degree. And Yale is where Hillary Clinton got her law degree. Uh, to the question of originalism, Amy, Amy Coney Barrett uh, explained that it means I interpret the Constitution as a law. I understand it to have the meaning that it had at the time people ratified it. That does, the meaning doesn't change over time, and it's not a, for me uh, to update or infuse my policy views into it, to which Hillary Clinton responded, at the time the Constitution was ratified, women couldn't vote, much less be judges. So being an originalist means you oppose women's suffrage, according to Yale law grad Hale, uh, Hillary Clinton. Right. They don't teach the amendments, apparently, in law schools anymore. I don't know. Um, just on the issue of Obamacare, we, we've gone through this on this show, but um, you know, we want to go through it with you because you're an expert in this space. And, and that is the idea that uh, if Amy Coney Barrett is confirmed, the Obamacare case before the court 
next term will mean that Obamacare is overturned. We're going to hear from witnesses today saying, please don't overturn Obamacare because I need it and so on and so forth. All the same sophistry we've heard from the senators. She explained in an exchange with DiFi a little bit about the severability issue that is at bar in the case that's coming before the Supreme Court. But it turns out, as the Wall Street Journals and others have argued, this is no slam dunk for Ken Paxton and the Republican attorneys general that have brought this case to the high court. It's not clear at all where Amy Coney Barrett uh, may come down. Yeah, I think it's a frivolous position to say that Obamacare is going to be overturned in toto. And I don't think there's a single vote on the Supreme Court with or without Amy Barrett to throw out the whole of Obamacare. And on the narrow issue that the lower courts have think they've resolved, which is that by zeroing out the mandate, it's no longer a tax. And therefore, it's not what it was when the Supreme Court upheld it in the Sebelius case back in 2012. I don't even think there's five votes for that. I think what the court is going to end up saying is you don't even get to severability because zeroing out a tax is not the same thing as repealing a tax. It's a technical legal difference. But they didn't throw out the tax. They just zeroed it out. And what the lower court in a very activist way, which I think is inappropriate for conservative judges, just like the liberal ones. What he ended up saying was because they zeroed out, they had effectively repealed it. And because it's, there's no financial penalty to it, it's not a tax anymore. And therefore, the mandate has to go. And because the mandate is so important to the whole statute, the whole statute has to go. I don't even think the Supreme Court's going to say the mandate is gone. But if they do say that, there's no way they're going to say that the mandate's not severable for the, from the rest of Obamacare. The Supreme Court twice in the, at the end of the last term reaffirmed its severability jurisprudence, which basically says they have a presumption that even if you find one component of the statute to be invalid, they try to preserve the rest of what Congress has done, unless Congress explicitly says that if X provision goes, the whole statute has to go, which Congress not only hasn't said here, but Congress amended the statute without repealing it. So we know that Congress didn't want to throw out Obamacare because they didn't. So there's no way the Supreme Court's going to throw this out. It's a, it's a bunch of malarkey, but it's the Trump administration's fault. They joined this lawsuit and they handed on a silver platter to the Democrats a campaign issue for you know the next three weeks for, and, 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 the, yeah. and this confusing issue on Barrett. He is Andy McCarthy, former chief assistant U.S. attorney in Manhattan, contributing editor of National Review, author of the bestseller, Ball of Collusion, The Plot to Rig an Election and Destroy a Presidency. Thanks for joining us, Andy. Thanks so much. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. As we close out this Thursday edition, I want to reference a piece from Anthony Esselin in Crisis Magazine, crisismagazine.com. Thank you, Mr. President, is the title. Anthony Esselin, a great uh, Catholic academic and thinker. Book ending the hour, Rusty Reno at the top, Anthony Esselin to uh, close it out. Esselin writes, in my last article, I wrote that I would soon cast a vote against the party that promises to persecute the church and to subjugate all her schools, colleges and beneficent organizations to an ideology that is fundamentally inhuman. I said also that was no ringing endorsement for the other party. Several readers accused me of ingratitude. Here we go with that idea of living a life in gratitude. He takes that accusation seriously, writes Esselin. I know him and I know he does. 
So let me say that I am grateful for what assistance, though sporadic and founded on no coherent philosophy of man, we receive from political bodies. Nor should we underestimate the power of such assistance. And he goes through a number of examples, clearly talking about his gratitude for some of the policy choices of the Trump administration. For example, when an administration suspicious of the global elites who evince neither love of country nor any wise forethought for the welfare of man, because man, in their view, is an atom of hedonic will managed by their pseudo-organism of the collective, when uh, an administration frees its people in large measure from the caprices of oil-rich Muslim nations and begins to disentangle them from many a spider web of enmity and greed where their national interests are not at stake, bringing boys home rather than having them kill or be killed to pad the resumes of military and diplomatic bureau chiefs, then far from being tagged as authoritarian, the administration should be praised for common sense and again for cracking open another window of liberty. He's uh, positively effusive, is Anthony Eslin. To give another example, when an administration shrugging aside the laissez-faire instincts of its own party adherents moves in a determined way to recalibrate, quote-unquote, free trade with China, first because there can be no free play with a nation ruled by autocratic cheats, and second because questions regarding trade cannot be resolved in the abstract, but must account for the circumstances of a nation's people, their work, their natural resources, and the items to be traded, and thus begins to return to manu- return manufactured to this country, then it deserves the thanks of all people who value community life and who want, for those who will not be doctors and lawyers, work that builds up the character rather than welfare that disheartens and degrades. For that, he's grateful. And so a number of examples here. But uh, he reminds us something about politics, too. Politics is a muddle at best, at worst a snake pit. We've only begun to consider the needs of the working class. Our public schools are ghastly. Our colleges are no better. And they, with government largesse, behave as a credentialing cartel, bleeding the middle class for all they're worth. We have no idea what to do about illegal drugs and those who peddle them. Marriage and family are in free fall. Race relations, despite interracial marriage, are terrible. Our popular entertainment would have to approve considerably to be merely foul. It's often diabolical. And community life is mostly a thing of the past. But for the... You know, half a dozen or so benefits, he noted, accomplishments of the Trump administration as he sees them. He says, I am grateful, and he does so without tongue-in-cheek. This is earnestness from Esselin. This is not sarcasm. It's just context, and uh, context is always useful, and so is the indispensable Anthony Esselin. Thank you for joining us on this edition of The Dan Prof Show. Please do so again tomorrow to close out our week. This is the Dan Proft Show.